0: Trail and ultra runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coop Cast. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop. I'm glad everybody's with me today because this one is a good one. We have another research breakdown, and it is all about ketogenic diets and high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets and their impact on endurance, performance, and in order to cut through a lot of the clutter with the research, I brought on the podcast today somebody who's way smarter than me in this area, and that's one of our coaches, Stephanie Howe, PhD. We take a look at the past, the present, and the future of the research in this area and try to make it make sense for all of the athletes out there in order to guide your decisions and Although the conclusions that the past, the present, and the future research has come to all seems to be in alignment, they keep coming to the same answers time and time again, this is still a confusing area of research and one that's riddled with nuance and something that is honestly underappreciated, particularly in the ultra marathon world. So much so, and then we discussed this during the podcast, that a lot of athletes and a lot of coaches out there are relying on anecdote- In order to guide their practice and to determine what is best for them going forward we try to break through a lot of that in a very logical sensical way and then at the very end we discuss what it would take to change our minds what would it take for us to say okay we want to think about this a little bit differently than we do today which i always think is an open-minded and very healthy way to think about a lot of these things so here we go let's get right into it Here's my conversation with ketogenic and high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets with one of our coaches, Stephanie Howe. So you want to get into this?
1: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it.
0: I was about to say I knew you'd be stoked when we when I presented yeah. the subject matter to you. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna rewind a little bit because I am gonna as 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 I alluded to this morning. I'm gonna let you take over a lot of this but i want to rewind a little bit to provide some some context for the listeners because i know like a lot of a lot of coaches and a lot of runners out there they don't have the entire context of history when it has to do with when it has to do with looking at nutrition interventions and in many cases we've looked at the same interventions over the course of 20 years and sometimes found the same conclusions sometimes found different conclusions and other times find like more kind of like nuance to it and i think this is one of those cases when we're looking at ketogenic and low carbohydrate diets and their way to potentially impact um endurance performance and you know i've i've been coaching for nearly 20 years and it, whenever the subject comes up i always go back to the i always go back to the point that this is the third time this is like the third round that I've really seen this strategy start to come to light and to like catch some attention in the space. And so it's not new, I guess is is the Mm -hmm. first thing we've, we've looked at this and sports scientists have have kind of looked at this for years. And just in my, just in my coaching career, this is right around the third time in relative to this paper, there have been three other papers or sorry, this is the third paper that the same author has published that mm-hmm. that has revisited this area. So the paper we're going to talk about was published in 2020, and the title of it is "ketogenic low carbohydrate high fat diet: the future of elite endurance sport." I feel like I should emphasize that differently. The future of elite endurance sport? Question mark because the question you... mark
1: that's the key part of that
0: <laughs> the, title. There is there is a question mark at the end of it. it is a, it's commentary that was written by Louise Burke, very esteemed uh, sports scientist from the Australian Institute for sport has been doing it for many years, probably one of the most esteemed sports scientists in the world, particularly in the Mm -hmm. area of nutrition and particularly in this, in this area. But this is the, the third piece of commentary that she has produced in this area over the last 16 years. The first one was in 2006 and the title of it is Fat, ad, fat adaptation for athletic performance. The nail in the coffin? Question mark. Once again, yes. a question mark kind of coming out. Her for, titles
1: are brilliant.
0: The, the titles are great because they're like they're they're provocative, which science needs a little bit more of that. Some of it tends to be a little bit dry. Mm-hmm. But so that was the first one. It was produced in 2006, and once again, kind of li- lining up with my. This is the third time I've seen it. Time frame. That was the first one. And then the second one has a kind of an equally provocative title. It's reexamining High Fat Diets for Sports Performance. Did we call the nail in the coffin, in quotes, too soon, question mark. <laughs> so all three of these titles have some sort of question mark in it. And Luis's point with the commentary that she's providing is to try to answer that question. Right. And, and I think all too often when... Coaches and athletes and like uh, lay literature get a hold of scientific commentary. A lot of emphasis is put on the title, or a a lot of interpretation, I guess, is put onto the title. Mm
1: -hmm. The title and just reading the abstract and maybe the conclusions.
0: 100%. 100%. Yeah. So we're specifically going to go over the last iteration or the most recent iteration of this, which is ketogenic, low carbohydrate, high fat diet, the future of elite endurance sport, question mark. And the, as I alluded to, this is commentary. This is Louise Burke's commentary on Mm -hmm. the state of the science on this particular Mm -hmm. topic. It's not an intervention study. It's not original research or anything like that. She's taking, and she's She's taking all of the research that is that has existed over the course of all of the years, in particular, the most recent ones, and coming up with an opinion on it and trying to summarize it.
1: Right. Yeah, this is a really good review article of all of the literature on this topic. And I've heard Louise speak about the low-carbohydrate high f- high fat diet. And she is, she works out of the Australian Institute of Sport and works with a lot of Olympians and is really invested in dietary interventions for enhancing performance. And so this talk that I heard her give, she said she was really, she actually wanted to find a benefit in this low carbohydrate, high fat, but study after study they had done in their lab, they just couldn't find a performance benefit. And so she's just kind of, you know, been the the leader in, in keeping us on track with this, um, but she's very invested in performance and what's best for the athlete. So like you said, she's an incredible, um, breadth of knowledge and, um, in sports nutrition, one of the leaders for sure.
0: Yeah. I think there's a couple of other, um, uh, poignant remarks or poignant frames of reference that we need to keep in mind when we start to discuss this commentary is the first one we already mentioned is that this is research and analysis of other research that's been done over years. But mm-hmm. the second one is is with because it's coming out of the Australian Institute for Sport, which is part of their Olympic program, their focus is primarily on the Olympic events, and in this context, it's the Olympic endurance events. Which, God. for 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 an endurance perspective, that's the 5K, the 10K, the marathon, and race walking. Which there's a lot of research on on race walking. Now, since we have primarily an ultra marathon audience, there are certain like leaps of faith and certain things that we don't know, certain extensions of the research that may or may not be valid. But when we're talking about the the commentary that that we're going to give some review on uh Luis, Luis Burke's particular point of reference is for those olympic sports primarily although there's some small commentary that i'm sure that we're going to get into as it directly applies to uh, uh to ultramarathon athletes so so that's the context so Steph, this is your world. This is your <laughs> wheelhouse. You take it away from there. What What are like the key findings? What are the key summary points on this particular piece of commentary?
1: Yeah. So this, uh, this review is really well done. And um, Louise kind of breaks down every study that has looked at Any intervention in low carbohydrate, high fat, including ketogenic and non ketogenic, and really talks about first all of the misconceptions in this area, because that's really a big part of it um, is not knowing the definition. And the actual definition of a ketogenic, low carbohydrate, high fat diet is less than 50 grams per day of carbohydrate and about 75 to 80% of energy coming from fat. So that's kind of the first piece of like, okay, so there's a lot of misinformation out there, just even about what this diet is. And then two, most of the uh, purported benefits actually come from social media. There's not too many studies that have (laughs) addressed this issue. It's mostly coming from just the spread of people an N of one or just writing a lay article or tweeting something that are promoting, um, the benefits of, um, low carbohydrate, high fat. So she really does a good job of kind of setting the stage and then she breaks down every study that has looked at, you know, different athletes, different interventions. And this is where kind of the the nuance comes in, looking at the methods and trying to compare apples to oranges between an observational study, um, a really rigorous um, controlled study, and just looking at what did they actually measure? How long did they measure? So it's like when you start reading it, it's really like, Wow, we don't know. <laughs> There's not a lot of consistency between studies, and so when you when you look at that, it's it's hard to really even say that we know very much about the outcomes. Um, but in her review, and I just went through this morning to like and I circled. She has a column that says performance benefit, and in every single one, there is no benefit in performance when the subjects consumed either a self-selected or a short-term or a medium or long-term low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. There was no improvements in performance. And to me, that's kind of the bottom line because when we're talking about eating a certain way to improve performance for endurance athletes, that's what we care about. We don't really care about are they better fat oxidators which they are but does that translate into performance. And so that's the number one key takeaway from this review article.
0: What's 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 interesting is is you know I painted like this kind of broad history and we could even go back to the mid 80s when some of the stuff was originally studied. There's this there's this dichotomy where we actually where sports scientists and athletes have looked at it and have tried it and do have anecdotal evidence. From these types of nutrition interventions for years. But yet, as you were just mentioning, the actual scientific conclusions are inconsistent and like fewer and farther in between than you would think for something that has received as much attention as it has received.
1: Right, right. And one of my favorite quotes from Louise is turning controversy into conclusion is not science. (laughs) Um, You know, when you think about what you learn in the lab and through a research study versus real life application, it's not black and white. So yeah, there are people who have changed their eating patterns and I'm just going to go ahead and say they're probably eating better. They're probably paying more attention to what they're eating and most of their improvements come because they maybe could stand to lose some weight and they, they improve their body composition and that turns into improved performance, but not necessarily for the reasons that they claim that it's the low carbohydrate it's not that it's that they were reduced their energy intake and they improved their performance through that those means
0: so 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 the 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 bottom line nickel version of this is the answer to the original question is a low carbohydrate high fat diet the future of elite endurance sports the answer to that is no, ba- no. based on this review
1: No. Yeah. And I I think, you know, there's been, we'll, we'll get into this, but Louise did a repeat study on her findings. First, first time there's been a repeat study, um, and she found the same exact results. So as far as we know, this is, this is not the future of elite endurance sport.
0: Yeah. I I like, I like the way that you couch that though, is with, as far as we know, because something could change, two years, five years, 10 years from now, and we know something different or the intervention is tweaked or whatever that makes this whole conclusion different.
1: Right. And that's part of being really, um, when you're, when you are a researcher or into science, you're open to changes. You're open to things as we progress and we learn more. And that makes you a better, I guess, scientist, not that you're like, I see one way and one way only.
0: Right. Well, so we're gonna come back to two points, right? We're gonna come back to supernova one and supernova two. And then we're also gonna come back to the what would it take to change your mind question, which we're always open minded. And yeah. I think it's I think it's poignant to 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 think about those things years down the line where yeah, something might actually come along. We might think about things differently. But before we jump, you know, before we start to jump to that, I think it it's an it's a too simplistic of an answer, or maybe it's not, but it's a really simplistic answer just to say, no, it's not, it's not the future, at least as we know it today, it's not the future, but there are a lot of purported mechanisms for a low carbohydrate, high fat diet being superior in endurance performance. And I think that this, I, I think that this commentary starts to bring to light what all of those purported mechanisms or supposed mechanisms are, how they've been tested, and then what the results of those tests actually are. So maybe we can first kind of move through all of those different, this is why it might actually work. Because that was one of the questions that Luis originally started with back in mm-hmm. the mid-2000s is like, okay, this is how it could actually work. Let's test for it. So what what does this review paper say in terms of that?
1: Yeah, so just even taking a step back to define um, just the two substrates that are used during endurance exercise. So carbohydrate and fat, we don't use protein as a substrate. So carbohydrate and fat are the two fuels that our body uses. And it's not like a light switch we use one or the other, we use them at varying degrees, depending on the intensity, the higher the intensity, the more carbohydrate, the lower the intensity, the more fat. And there's a crossover point that happens where we start to use exponentially more carbohydrate. And at that point is usually around, depending on the person, 50 to 60% of their max. So if you think about race intensity, you're usually going to be above that crossover point where you're starting to use more carbohydrate. So I think that's an important point to make is you're always using some of both unless you're at really high intensity um, exercise, which like at your max, basically, then you're using all carbohydrate. So for an ultra, you're going to be at a lower intensity. So you are going to be using proportionately more fat. And the reason that's important is because we have unlimited fat stores in our body and fat yields more energy than carbohydrate. And we have such limited stores of carbohydrate that we have to supplement with it. And in an ultra, when you're taking in um, exogenous sources of carbohydrate with exogenous meaning coming from outside of the body, there's a potential for stomach issues and for absorption and introducing all of those those, um, factors that can often lead to a DNF. And so if we think like, hey, maybe if we teach the body to use more fat because we have so much available, then we won't have to rely on carbohydrate as much. So how do we maximize fat oxidation? So that's kind of the premise behind why this sounds like a really attractive way to fuel for endurance runners.
0: I want to, I want to take some time and go over the intensity piece of it a little bit, just so everybody kind of understands. So Stephanie alluded to this concept called the cross, the carbohydrate or the crossover point, which where you start to utilize a greater proportion of carbohydrates versus fat, uh, in your, in your energy uh, mixture. And that occurs at approximately 50 to 60% of VO2 max. So what does that mean? Right? Well, what? for, for like an elite marathoner, Elliot Kipchoge or these people that ran the London marathon, you know, last weekend, they might be operating between like 80 and maybe a little bit north of 90% of their VO2 max, so, like super intensive. It so they're, they're way past this, this crossover point Yep. for an average ultra runner we kind of really don't know a good answer because the range is so big. Right. And I've kind of felt, this is an I feel statement, that if you have a really good athlete that is running a 50K or a 50 mile, they can do about a couple of hours worth, maybe two and a half hours worth of work. So if you think about the climbs, like a Mm five-hour race, the climbs are going to be about you know, two and a half, maybe upwards to three hours of that five of, of that five-hour race, they're gonna be able to do that pretty close to the lactate threshold, which can be 80% of their V2 max or something like that. Yep. Still way far to the right of this carbohydrate crossover point, even in mm-hmm. an ultra. And as the distance get long gets longer and longer and longer, they might get closer and closer and closer to that crossover point. But if you're running and this is the this is always one of like the fundamental things that I keep coming back to if you're running you're running at a decently high percentage of your VO2 max just to run just to like have that form that have that form of locomotion so it's not like you're operating at like 10% of your VO2 max or 15% of your VO2 max or anything like that
1: yeah, absolutely. And and there is such a range, and it's going to be variable depending on the race and the individual. There's going to be times where you're creeping up towards 80%, maybe when you're going up a hill, or even I'm just thinking like the last 20 miles of a 100 mile race, like your effort, despite your pace being slowed, is going to be pretty high. And so it's really hard for us to say, yeah, ultra runners are around you know, 60 to 70% because they might be down to 40% when they're walking and they might be up to 80, 85% when they're pushing really hard. So that range is, is quite large.
0: Yeah. And that, and that's, I think that that's a valid point to make is a, it's not, it's not a steady state effort. It's certainly not nearly as steady state as a marathon effort or race walking effort, which is commonly studied. And B, there is going to be a bigger range, even with the most elite athletes but with you know everyday athletes that are finishing the Ludville Trail 100 in 24 hours or 20 hours or whatever, they're still going to have a tremendous amount of variability there. But I still don't think it's that low. Like I don't think this is somebody's going to shoot me down on the statement. and I'm fine with that. But I think only rarely it gets below like 40% of VO2 max.
1: I agree with that statement. I mean, it. You know, even if you're not moving that fast, you're working hard when you've been out there for hours. Um, and it's you know, it, it, it relative intensity is more important than absolute.
0: Yep. Okay. So we've got this theory, right, where you have an unlimited amount of fuel available in your stored fat, and the initial like, oh, I wonder if we can do this type of moment was okay. Let's try to tap. Let's actually like try to tap into that. Via some form or fashion, let's try a, let's try a uh, some sort of dietary intervention. Let's use a low fat approach. Let's use a ketogenic approach. What's the fundamental trade off of trying to do that?
1: Right. So since it takes a lot more oxygen to break down fat, there's a limitation because it it's a slower process, and so the the exercise economy, which is defined as the amount of energy it takes or the amount of oxygen it takes to perform a given intensity is increased. So basically what that means is it's harder to do the same amount of work. It's more energetic cost for the body. And so that decreases the ability to go at a higher intensity, um, the the energy cost is just higher when you're relying more on fat.
0: Yeah, so there's an economy penalty to play, and right. that economy penalty, if the Breaking Two project by Nike and the 159 uh, uh, project by Inos has taught us anything, is that in these elite marathons, in an elite endurance, per, in an elite endurance sport economy is one of if not the hero metric that we you know put at the very very top of this pyramid it is the beacon of light that everybody's trying to aspire to so much so that we've got shoes that are now considered mechanical doping and you know should they allow pacers and then in what type of formation all of those interventions are designed to reduce running economy or to make running economy better right right um that's certainly true at in, in those types of sport at the elite marathon. But when we translate it to ultra marathon, is that actually as important?
1: Well, it's not as important in terms of like, cause speed becomes not irrelevant, but it's just, you know, there's, there's a lot more room for, um, for error or for, I guess, just you know, the speed doesn't matter as much. If you lose a couple minutes, you're not going to lose the race. Where in a marathon, you lose a couple seconds, you might lose the race. So in like the, the quick and easy answer is no, it's not as important, but it actually is when you're talking about being out there for hours and hours, if the energy cost is a little bit higher, like that's going to, that's going to add up over the miles that you're out.
0: Okay so the way that they the way that they've tested this that we've alluded to earlier is they view primarily not exclusively maybe not even primarily but one of the big ones that gets a lot of attention let me put it that way is with elite race walkers which i've yeah. always found fascinating because and and cool from our perspective because i think that they're that's more analogous than LA kipchoge trying to run under 2 hours right it's
1: more similar to ultra running
0: 100% and so what, one of the studies that have got gotten a lot of attention is the moniker of this is a supernova study? And they take a group of elite race walkers and they put them into a high carbohydrate group, a low carbohydrate group, and a periodized carbohydrate group. They run them through that intervention, and then they test them at the end of the inter- intervention. And that that raised a lot of um, attention to this study because mm-hmm. just like the answer to this question is no. Some of the original findings to that study is is here. Yes, exercise economy is impaired when you go onto a low carbohydrate diet, and that is the mechanism for the performance impairment. So then you had two pieces, right? You mentioned earlier that we care about the performance, but now we know why.
1: Right? Yeah we we care about the performance. Why?
0: No, no, no. And now we know why. We know uh, oh, why. Oh, we know the, why. Yeah, yeah, which absolutely. The, which is the economy. And,
1: um. To go into that study a little bit more, because I think it's worth um, just kind of mentioning, this was a really, really well-designed study um, with a lot of variables controlled. And some of the other studies are much less rigorous where... Many times the, the athletes are just, they self-select into groups based on their habitual eating patterns. And I'm kind of referring to the the Volex study where they didn't control for diet. They just had them come in. They're like, I'm a low carbohydrate. I'm a high carb- carbohydrate. They gave them the, you know, the snack that went with the diet, did the test and then said, Hey, look at this greater fat oxidation in the low carbohydrate group. This study that looked at the race walkers actually had them in a training camp where everything was controlled. Their meals were customized for them. And and we this is something that we kind of glaze over, but it's really hard to design a low carbohydrate diet, 75 to 80% fat. And have it be um, compliant, and so they had registered dietitians and sports nutritionists creating these individualized meal plans that the athletes got every day. They got snacks every day. They had training prescribed for them, and they were in this camp for five and a half weeks. So that's a very different scenario, and I, I think it's important to point that out. Those methods because that just shows the robustness of this study and. As you said, they found that in these three groups there was no performance benefit with the low carbohydrate. And I don't know if we want to go here yet, but there was a little controversy.
0: Let's Should go. go let's 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 kind of set it up because okay. the bridge that I wanted to make was to a study that came out after Luis's Luis Burke's commentary, and the title of it is "Crisis of Con- Cr- Crisis of Confidence Averted." Impairment of exercise economy and performance in elite race walkers by ketogenic, low carbohydrate, high fat diet is reproducible. A little, once again, alluding to the fact that when you actually do a study, the titles are a little bit more wordy and boring as compared to the provocative ones where it's a little bit of commentary. But as the title alludes to, this is a repeat of a study that they did earlier. So the first one's called supernova, this one's called supernova 2. And essentially they were trying to figure out, hey, could we could we, could we reproduce these results in the in a group of race walkers that we saw beforehand? Do it do the, is there a crisis of confidence meaning were the results of the first study somehow invalid? And yes, go ahead, go ahead, Steph.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so they basically took all the criticisms and comments from the first study and addressed them and basically repeated the study with even stronger methods. And in the second study, they included females as well. In the first study, they only had male racewalkers. And basically, they found the same exact results. And one of the, this is what I was alluding to just a, a minute ago. One of the um, controversies was that after that first study, there were a few athletes who had improved performance two to three weeks after the study had concluded that were in, some of them were in the low carbohydrate group. Some of them were in the high carb- carbohydrate group, but the, the um, point was these athletes actually improved after the study. So potentially there is a role for periodized low carbohydrate, high fat. So in this second follow-up study, they, they did the same exact methods, had these athletes in the training camp in the three different groups. And then they had a seven day or sorry, 10 day um, just kind of back to high carbohydrate or carbohydrate available diet after they finished the intervention leading into a 20 K national championship race walk. And to see if potentially that was, uh, you know, uh, a factor that those in the low carbohydrate group, after returning to carbohydrate available would have a stronger performance. And they found that was not correct. So their their conclusion on that was that periodized ketogenic low carbohydrate high fat returning to carbohydrate available does not improve performance above just having carbohydrate available during training sessions,
0: and so once again, the crisis of confidence was averted because re- you can look at something and say, "Okay, maybe there were two or three outliers that skewed the results, or maybe we just got lucky with the way we put people into the groups, or whatever." But when you do it twice and you find pretty much the exact same results, and one of the things that I think is actually really int- is really really interesting on the result side with both with both of these is the magnitude of improvement and the magnitude. Of getting worse between the groups, they were almost exactly the same between mm-hmm. those two studies and, and it really meets the physiology. So I've got the second paper pulled up right now, and I'll mention it. And I'll kind of read directly, read directly, or I'll paraphrase the the paper. So I get it correctly. The high carbohydrate group improved by 4.8%. They're, ta- they're talking about the time trial that you were just referencing Stephanie, the high carbohydrate group improved by 4.8%. The low carb high fat were slower by 2.3%. And sorry, the, the periodized carbohydrate group was better by 2.2%. So you have two groups getting better. And one group getting worse and the Delta between the high carbohydrate group, which was better by 4.8% and the low carbohydrate, high fat group, which was worse by 2.3% is about 7%. And we know that the economy impairment, if you just look at the physiology or really the, the, just the stoichiometric equations that go into that go into fuel utilization and carbohydrate and fat oxidation, it's about 8% difference. Between carbohydrate, between the oxygen that's required to liberate energy from carbohydrate versus the oxygen that's required to liberate energy from fat. And the fact that the delta between those two groups like gets really close to that and you're able to repeat it, it's just so stunning.
1: Right, right. There's not much argument you can make after that study.
0: (laughs) Case closed. I mean, you know,
1: and it, it. not not case closed, but this for right now, for at this moment in time, this is what we know. And that's the best way for us to prescribe using sports nutrition to benefit performance.
0: Okay. So where does it get messy when we try to translate this to into ultra marathon? Because once again, this is race walking. It's not ultra running. We, we, we very routinely make logical extensions of research done in other sport groups, cycling, running, triathlon, cross country skiing is done a lot. And, mm-hmm. and we try and we try to figure out what, how to make sense of that and apply it to a different sport. And you have to be really careful when you do that because it's not one-to-one mm-hmm. translation. If I was coaching race walkers, this would be pretty close to one-to-one translation, <laughs> but we're, we're not working with race walkers. We're working with ultra marathon runners. So where does it get messy?
1: Right. I mean, you introduce so many other variables when you get into alter running and it's hard, you know, even just taking like a a research study and applying it to a real life scenario, you know, there's a lot of room for some gray area. I mean, not everyone has a registered dietitian creating the meal plans and making sure they're compliant and they're getting rest. And, you know, so anytime you, you take a study and apply the results to an application in real life, you have to be aware of that, but even more so taking this sport, which is race walking. And it's, it's definitely, you know, it's the time to complete the event is so much less than even a 50k and you know we work with people who are 50k 80k 100 mile you know they might be out there for days and so this just becomes really blurry and it's like a really you know two different it's like apples to oranges to some extent but it is the closest science we have because there isn't there isn't a really a way to measure this in ultra running. Like you can't put someone on the treadmill for three days. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you could, wait. <laughs> good luck getting an IRB to approve that.
0: Um, I always come back to there's also training implication because right. we have our athletes train at these intensities all of the time. And if we're looking to elicit the most amount of training adaptation out of an interval session or things like that, we're asking our athletes to go hard, work hard, you know, do these intervals, do these long runs and things like that. They're doing these at intensities that are routinely studied and are very close, if not exactly the same as a lot of these race walking studies. And so if you want to get the most out of that workout, you can absolutely or workouts entire series of workouts. You can absolutely apply the findings of this research just to day-to-day training to eke out the most results.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's not like when we think of ultra running, we think of like people, you know, skipping through the mountains and so happy and, you know, running <laughs> slow. And it's like, no, 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 we actually work high-end Intensity. Like we work VO2 max because the more fit you are, the better ultra runner you're going to be. And so, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Like these sports nutrition principles that we know for these intensities definitely carry over for ultra running because you don't just go out and run for five hours every day. You do (laughs) interval
0: sessions. (laughs) But the, but the, I'll I'll play devil's advocate a little bit. So we're not, we're not having too much confirmation bias between the two of us. The, the devil's advocate piece of it is, ultra running is at such a low intensity that a you can't as apply as much of this research as you think you can into certainly into the race scenario which i think there's more validity to that Mm -hmm. than than to the other piece um but but b because it's at such a low because it's at such a low intensity that's what that is what lends itself to be more favorable towards people who are better fat oxidizers
1: Right. Right. And I mean, you know, being able to maximize your fat oxidation is something I would say is important for an ultra runner, but it's not necessarily done just through manipulating diet. A lot of that is through training adaptations as well. And I would say that, you know, day-to-day diet is very important and, you know, you don't have to go extremist in like I'm eating this diet, but Having a well balanced diet that we know supports endurance athletes is important for ultra runners as well.
0: Yeah. And I, I think a lot of times when we start to look at these studies, we get too narrowly focused on the very specific like fuel utilization outcomes of mm-hmm. these interventions and not broaden it out to okay, what does this diet mean mean as a whole to this person? And interestingly enough, I wasn't planning on bringing this up, but I might as well because it's a really salient point because this latter study, the crisis of confidence study that we were just talking about was done so well. One of the kind of one of the kind of repercussions of that is they can take pieces of it and create new research based off of it. And one of the pieces that came out is it turns out that people that are on the low, car- low carbohydrate, high fat intervention had poor markers of bone health. Now that's not to say they're all going to get stress fractures tomorrow. That's a, right. a little bit of a leap of faith, but as a precursor to bony injuries, that is certainly something that would, that, that would be concerning. And so once again, I kind of take it out of the fuel utilization standpoint and say, okay, what does this mean for their overall health injury susceptibility, and things like that?
1: Right, right. And I think you really have to look at the individual and get to know them to really find the right diet per se. I I always think of diet as the the foods that an individual chooses to eat, not like a a list of foods prescribed by whatever the title is. So finding that, that correct diet for the individual really depends on a lot of factors that are outside of just performance.
0: hundred percent. Okay. Um, before we get into our last question, I'm going to let you think about this for a little bit. First off, both of these papers are open access. I'm going to have links to them in the show notes. They are dense and I've heard a full disclosure. It'll take you a while to get to get, I've got, it'll take you a while to get through them. I'm looking at 70 pages of printouts on my desk right now, Uh, they're not for the faint of heart. Let's put it that way. Fair statement. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, are there any other big nuggets of wisdom from either of the two studies that we looked at stuff that's worth bringing up.
1: I just think this goes to show like, you, you know, how, how much, cause you know, we've heard so much about the low carbohydrate high fat diet and it just really looking through these reviews of like the studies that have actually done this are quite, there's quite small, um, cohort of studies. So most of the information that we are hearing is through social media, and I think that's worth bringing up because it, we're just bombarded with it. And right now, that's how we connect to each other. So it's almost like you know, daily I see stuff daily. Um, and I think as a consumer of this information, it's really important to not just take it for point blank and to think about it, like, okay, where where is this coming from? And It's sometimes hard to distinguish, but if it's just someone who is just writing an article who read the abstract and doesn't know that this is done in mice or this is done in triathletes or this is like, you know, not looking at the methods, you have to be a little bit careful with the interpretation. Mm,
0: So what you're saying is the body of anecdote is greater than the body of research.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, and it's kind of you know most of it is is pseudoscience or false information. Yeah,
0: hundred percent. Okay, we're gonna get to our last question. I've kind of built this up too much, I think, <laughs> um, but to set it up, so we've got this like fourteen year history of looking at uh, Louis Burke's commentary, starting with fat adaptation for athletic performance. The nail in the coffin. The answer to that question was yes, and then we move on to the next question re-examining high-fat diets for sports performance. Did we call the nail in the coffin too soon? The answer to that was no. And then we go to the final article, Crisis of Confidence. Oh, no, sorry. I was reading the wrong one. Ketogenic, low-carbohydrate, high-fat, the future of elite endurance sport, question mark. The answer to that is no. So we've got this like 14-year pattern of looking at this body of research and kind of coming to the same conclusion. What would it take? I'm going to answer this question too. What would it take to change your mind, Steph?
1: Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot. And I think the first thing would be a really good randomized controlled study that has pretty rigorous methods and strong statistical analyses, and then that it's repeated. Ooh, I think that's the key. Yeah, I mean, first, actually seeing a good study mm-hmm. produced that shows actual benefits in performance, not just metrics measured in a lab, but actual performance, that's going to be the first thing where I'm like, okay, tell me more. And then wait for something to be repeated, whether it's the same exact methods or another study done by different authors that finds the same conclusions of improved performance. That's when I'm really going to be open to it. And and I'm not someone who's like, carbohydrate, like that's my thing and nothing else. I'm just... I'm invested in performance and what is best for athletes. So I'm very open to having it change. I just haven't seen anything with results or conclusions with sound methods that has convinced me.
0: So not one, but two randomized control trials. It's in, it's interesting that you put, and we didn't, we should go over this, That that you think that it's important that it's randomized, which I, go yeah. ahead, go ahead. Yeah.
1: And that's, you know, a lot of times these groups are self-selected because I mean, it's easier. You're not, if you're someone who habitually eats more carbohydrate and you're put into a group where it's low carbohydrate, high fat, that might impact your perceptions of the outcome of the study and therefore performance. And so a lot of times, and even in Louise's study, They were self-selected into groups. Um, It was very well controlled while they did that. But oftentimes it's like, okay, so what do you identify with? And that's the group you're in.
0: Yeah. I think that that makes the results all the more powerful. Is the fact that they selected, they self-selected? Hey, I want to be in this group. I want to be in that group. I want to be in that group. Yes, which means that they they had a sense. The participants, these race walkers, had a sense that that intervention was going to be superior for them. And still, there was this very marked. I mean, six percent from tip to tail, four percent improvement to two percent to two percent getting worse.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That is at the Olympic level. It's the difference between you not even getting to the trials.
1: Right, right. It's a big difference. And and within those groups, there was pretty even distribution. There was 10 subjects in the low-carbohydrate, high-fat, eight in the periodized carbohydrate, and then eight in the high-carbohydrate. So it wasn't like it was skewed. Yeah. With a bunch in one or the other.
0: Yeah. So Stephanie wants two randomized controlled trials. Good luck. That's, those are hard studies to pull <laughs> off. I actually. So I, I agree. I agree with that. I think that those would both be good to see. But I would actually like to see a crossover design to see mm-hmm. the individual nature of how these interventions would work. So just to just to kind of level set every, for everybody that's listening. The, the, the type of study that uh, Stephanie is referring to is where you take a group of 50 people and you say, okay, you're in the first group, you're in the second group, you're in the third group, you're in the first group, you're in the second group, you're in the third group, you're randomly assigning those 50 people to the interventions that you are doing. Mm-hmm. In a crossover design, you're having each individual person do each of the interventions. And that tends to tease out the individual variations because you can see, okay, if we have Steph do a high-carbohydrate diet, she performs like this. Then we put her on a a high-fat diet, and she does that. We can compare kind of Steph to Steph across those two interventions. And as you know, nutrition is highly individual. And I think a lot of what we see in the anecdote that we were referring to earlier reflects that individuality of how people react. Not the whole thing, but some of it at least. Mm -hmm. And a crossover design would be really interesting from that perspective to see are there a group of people that – these people always react better to the high fat stuff, or these people always react better to the high carbohydrate stuff. I just think it'd be an interesting way to look at it.
1: That would be very interesting. And I think the reason this hasn't been done is because that's a really, really hard, both of these, both of our asks are really hard (laughs) research study to pull off, especially when you're talking about elite endurance athletes, they're so picky and for good reason, right? They're invested in their performance. So they're not they're not always open to interventions that may or may not help them improve. I'm actually very impressed with this study with the, these athletes that they were able to recruit and manipulate like this, um, because that's not something you see all the time and have such a tightly controlled five and a half week study.
0: Yeah. I mean, when they're, when their vocation or their profession is kind of on the line, it's a different it's a different kettle of fish to get people to right, sign up. But for let's
1: just throw this out there that we're both interested in the study. So if there's anyone who really would like to fund, um, a study <laughs> on elite athletes, I think Coop and I are kind of in the market. Um, we'd be happy to, you know, partner up with the lab and put out our first, uh, randomized controlled crossover study.
0: There you go. You can have you can have it Steph. I don't want to get my hands that dirty in this stuff. <laughs> we will report
1: you, back in about 5 years. Yeah,
0: 5 years would be at the at the very lower end of that whole spectrum. I'm just <laughs> thinking about it if you wanted to do if you wanted to do a crossover study, it would take at least half a year, maybe a whole year, cuz you'd have to wash it out.
1: Yeah, and depending on how many subjects you want, I mean to get statistical analysis, you're probably going to need 15 to 30 subjects oh and gosh. yeah,
0: it's so and easy then for males us to and
1: females working around the menstrual cycle <laughs> to control for that. We've got, yeah, it, we're talking years.
0: It'd be, it's so easy for us to think about and there's no consequence of us having to do the work. <laughs>
1: I know let's, let's just design this for somebody else.
0: <laughs> oh man. Okay. Somebody will take up take us up on it. Some uh, enterprising graduate student or PhD student <laughs> is listening to this. We'll have to take us up on it. Um, Steph, that was awesome. Thank, yeah, thank you for your time. Really appreciate yeah. it. This was—we'll uh, have to do this again at some other at some other juncture, huh?
1: Yeah, it's fun to kind of go through the literature.
0: Awesome. And there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Stephanie for coming on the podcast today. I always appreciate it when I get to talk nutrition with Stephanie. As you all can tell, she is very well-versed in this particular area, and she's a heck of a coach to boot. If you think a coach like Stephanie or any one of our CTS coaches is the right coach for you, maybe you've got a big event lined up this summer that just scares the crap out of you and you want to get the most fit possible, hit me up on social media or go to trainright.com. I guarantee you, we have a coach and a coaching package that is right for you. And I am more than happy to discuss this with anybody and get them with the right coach. We love working with athletes of all different types and abilities and experience levels. That's what we do as a living. We're coaches here. So if you think that, if you think coaching is something in your future, go ahead, hit me up on any social media platform and we will get the ball rolling Appreciate the heck out of everybody listening today. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.